Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have David Tobin, who's Hallsworth Research Fellow at the University of Manchester, and he'll be talking about his new book, Securing China's Northwest Frontier, Identity and Insecurity in Xinjiang, which was published this year, 2020, by Cambridge University Press. Knowledge of the Xinjiang region in northwest China has, some might say at long last, begun to percolate into public consciousness more consistently in the last couple of years. But for a host of reasons, what is exactly happening there and the reasons things are as they are remain unclear to many. Reports of the PRC state's extensive network of camps, for example, and their official mission to re-educate Uyghur and other Turkic and Muslim populations of Xinjiang are of utmost importance, but also generate greater demand for context to understand how such things can be happening at all. This is one reason why David Tobin's Securing China's Northwest Frontier is such an invaluable book, as it accounts for the contemporary situation in Xinjiang from multiple perspectives and through multiple genres of documents and testimony. Bringing together the fruits of years of ethnographic and documentary research, this is an authoritative, wide-ranging and readable account of both state projects to securitize the region and local dynamics on the ground. From exploring the framing of Xinjiang and its people as simultaneously other and part of an eternal China, as a security problem to be solved, and as a place where people from different ethnic groups have their own ideas about what identity and boundaries mean, Tobin gives us a rich and at times starkly personal account of both macro and micro level developments. This is thus a book which offers vital context for what's been happening recently in the region, particularly since the Urumqi riots there in summer 2009, and therefore also provides us with a much clearer picture of what contemporary PRC statehood means for its leaders and, more importantly, its citizens. But to explore some of these uh, sweeping issues alongside more uh, close hand, at hand ones, I would say, uh, it's a great pleasure to say, David Tobin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me to speak, Ed. It's a pleasure. Well, it's great to have you on to talk about something which, uh, yeah, I guess is both extremely kind of timely and, uh, and, and urgent to be discussed and something about which you know an awful lot. Um, before we get into the book, though, uh, perhaps I'll ask you kind of how you came to the subject, uh, how you kind of got interested in China and Xinjiang specifically. Yeah, this question always becomes harder to answer the longer you go on. Um, I think where the reason perhaps some of my arguments differ from China studies is I became interested in China via political science and international relations first. Then I turned to area studies. So really, I mean, I did a master's in IR theory before I did a master's in China studies. So that did shape. Uh, my interests, my sort of conceptual approach, um, but it all, I think it also meant that I was not—I wasn't approaching China as a as an exceptional place or an exotic place or somewhere different. I was interested in how it fit into the world and it changes the world. Uh, so that I think that that shapes some of my analysis. Uh, the my sort of scepticism about notions of Orientalism and Sinocentrism. I was really interested in issues of nationalism and ethnicity for for the long term, really, partly due to my background, um, but also my education uh, background being Irish in Scotland, in Britain, meant that I was very aware of identity politics um, and violence from a, from a young age. Um, obviously, very different dynamics from Xinjiang. Um, but I was used, I mean, I, I grew up, uh, going to a non-denominational school when I came from an Irish Catholic background, and it's religious, so they sent me to a non-denominational school, but then we went to Scotland for Christmas. This, that, that really, at a young age, I realised there was something not right about that. It was essentially objectivising uh, the majority culture for everyone. Um, and even as a child, I thought, this isn't, this doesn't sit well. So that I was always interested in the way inclusion can be threatening. Um, obviously, a lot of the book is about exclusion, making people insecure and, and so forth that, that matters very much. Um, but I think we often overlook how inclusion can be hierarchical and it can involve you having to essentially give up traditions, essentially, 
um, ethnocentric inclusion. Um, but think the debates we're seeing now in terms of how we talk about racism in the US and so forth. Um, okay. We saw many of these dynamics uh, in Xinjiang, um, but of course, violent securitization and also no sort of public forum to be able to fully debate or challenge racism, that, that then adds a different dynamic that people feel very repressed on a sort of very daily level that they're not able to talk about quite banal matters. Um, and then I suppose, I mean, yes, yeah, so I really was interested, I mean, studying IR obviously was, China was felt somewhat overlooked, it was seen, um, but I, I was, became interested in China at that point, quite young, studying political economy as well, interested in the rise of China, also interested in alternatives to the political economy we have. Um, I didn't have the romantic notions of finding exotic oriental wisdom um, <laughs> or of sort of utopian revolution. I was really interested in people. Um, I was interested in Marxism, but I was also interested why Marx wasn't really interested in China. <laughs> dismissing it as oriental despotism and how this played out in China. When I really came across the issue, I suppose, was studying IR around the time of 9-11 and for the first time, you know, it was, well, when George Bush said, uh, what was it, that he, the war on terror should not be used as an excuse for human rights abuses when he was referring to the execution of Uyghurs in stadiums after 9-11. At that point, that that became of interest for so many reasons. Uh, obviously, it's totally overlooked. Obviously, this challenged my notion of China at that point, not fully understanding its history, just probably thinking of it as an East Asian Confucian nation in the back of your head um, and not realising the diversity that's in Chinese history it's often concealed by official narratives. So, yeah, there have been a lot of books coming out recently uh, about this sort of issue, or at least relating to Xinjiang and relating to um, the region, and happen to be very timely. But obviously, you, like a lot of people who've written lots of these books, have been researching this in this area and this subject for many, many years. So was it that point, the kind of yeah war on terror era, I guess the onset of, of George Bush's war on terror, was that the first time you'd heard of Xinjiang yourself and kind of when it came into your consciousness? Obviously, I'd heard story. you know, you hear stories of the Silk Road and and so forth growing up even that you're, you know, you know that region is there, um, but probably in your imagination, like many people, it's just a sort of dead, Central Asia is essentially a desert between East Asia and the West. So I'm sure I grew up with all sorts of strange imaginations in my head, but the first time I'd heard Xinjiang talked about as a in terms of politics or really about people, uh, was essentially was that time. Why are why are Muslims being executed in public in China? Um, so it confounded my understanding of the world, but my understanding of China uh, in terms of in terms of where China is thinking, if you're just thinking China's an East Asian nation, the you know the Far East, and that that very much challenges that. Um, it also challenged, of course, that challenged assumptions at the time that the US is an, is you know the leading empire and is obviously conducting this war on terror that many people were saying is against international law and so forth, and you know seeing many of these dynamics in Xinjiang. Um, <laughs> my attention so that that was the first time I'd really heard people in Britain talk about actual people in Xinjiang as opposed to the simply grand imaginations of the place so it it got me interested in I mean it like I'd said I was obviously interested in international relations and political economy and how nationalism and ethnicity play into those so that issue obviously got my attention as you know, as an intellectual, but just also as a person trying to understand the world, really, um, why do people categorise other people and what are the effects of doing so was something that I grew up thinking about and has informed my work, drove me to be interested in China studies in a much deeper way. And But when I came to China studies, I was... I mean, certainly the master's degree I did. It, I mean, it began with Edward Said's Orientalism, which was hugely inspirational. Um, 
But then we quickly turned to Paul Cohen's Sinocentric view of of history, and that did not sit well with me. Um, but yeah, it, it just didn't sit well with me that the alternative to Eurocentrism was Sinocentrism. Uh, this did not seem to be much of an improvement in terms of how we understand different identities within state borders. Right, right. Well, with a sort of sense, I guess, of, yeah, like where you've come from, uh, I guess, yeah, disciplinarily at this issue and, and you know, the timing of your increased interest around the war, in, war on terror and, and these, um, yeah, I guess, uh, events which brought attention to somewhere a part of uh, China that wasn't very well known or, or wasn't sort of on people's radar so much. I think that gives us quite a good segue into the contents of the book itself. And um, I mean, one of the real sort of strengths or, or unique uh, contributions, I think, of the book is that it it looks in so much detail at things that have been happening since this kind of pivotal moment um, in 2009. And I guess, um, on the background of this sort of unfolding um, Chinese participation in in war on terror or use of war on terror as a justification for what what was going on in Xinjiang. 2009 was even on that background a, a pivotal year and 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 yeah a point at which very important things happened. So, could you kind of give a sense of of what that was, those events, and uh, why it is that you see them as such a turning point, and and how they sort of um, I guess prefigure a lot of the subsequent analysis that and and uh, accounts if, of the book as a whole. Yeah, the, the two. I mean, obviously, Sean Roberts' book highlights two thousand and one fairly strongly. Uh, I mean, I I do think it's his argument is more sophisticated than that uh, in the sense that he is quite cognizant and points out the the longer term history behind the issue. That it can't simply be reduced to copying the US, but it's clearly that was that was an important an important factor in the story in the sense that before nine eleven the the ethnic problem in the party state's terms was defined as a problem of separatism, and it was only after nine eleven that they they literally changed the narrative to reframe all the incidents of violence in the nineteen nineties as extremism and terrorism. So religion was really inserted at that point. So it. That's, a, that's hugely important, but I really see that as the war on terror and those logics. That's an, I really see that as an enabling factor. It doesn't quite explain why why do this at all. It explains why do this in certain forms, but not not why you conceive cultural difference as a problem, not why you perceive concentrated communities um, of ethnic, popul- ethnic minority populations as a problem. So, yeah, that informs my work. But yeah, 2009 was a turning point. I, w- I mean, I will stress, I don't try to argue it's an historical turning point in an objective sense, but it's certainly a turning point in the party state's narratives in the sense that it describes it as a turning point. Um, and that in itself is significant. Uh, I obviously arrived into, in Urumqi the second time in 2009 I didn't tend to write about the violence. The violence broke out um, long after my time was booked and ready to go. Uh, So I arrived just after the violence, the the worst brunt of the violence in July. And I I thought when I arrived, I thought, I don't actually want to write about violence specifically. I I don't want to make people talk about it. It can be traumatic. Also, I don't want to dramatise this issue. I was interested in how people negotiate um, nation building and on a day-to-day level but on arrival it's what everyone was talking about um, certainly I mean Uyghurs are very cautious about talking to outsiders in case you're spy or, or so forth but Han Chinese people in the room she were very open they would ask you you know where are you from are you married what do you think about terrorism and the Uyghurs you know be like question one two three that really that infused all the conversations I would have about identity um, and daily life at the time, so I couldn't avoid it. And of course, it, it was a turning point in many people's minds there that, in the sense that many Han friends in when I lived there in 2007 would say things like, come to Xinjiang and taste the Xinjiang flavour and so forth. You know, an ethnocentric narrative conceiving the region in terms of cuisine and and so forth, rather than people 
but that did shift to more explicit chauvinism. The same people were saying, we don't eat their food now, um, don't go to the Uyghur district, it's dangerous, and so forth. But the real, the party state, I mean, I think what's overlooked is that, and I guess what the book tries to say, that obviously many of the, the drives towards assimilation that we're seeing now are not new, intensified, clearly affecting more people than ever. But the notion that ethnicity of minorities is a problem and should be either deliberately engineered to disappear or should be allowed to gradually disappear through development is, is not new. What And it, it didn't emerge under Xi Jinping, which is, you know, a lot of the focus is on Xi and his appointment of Chin Chuanghua. But after the 2009 violence, that was the first Xinjiang working group meeting. Um, that's where the concept or the slogan contact communication fusion emerged. Huang Gang claims credit for that. He's, of course, one of the second generation of ethnic policy scholars that, would, that said we must engineer a race state, the Guozhou. It's specific that development wouldn't solve this problem. We need social engineering. Um, so Hu Jintao used this slogan about fusion um, shortly after 2009 that really has been taken on and advanced by Xi. So it's an important, it's a hugely important turning point um, in people's imagination on the ground, um, but also in party state narratives. Um, I don't want to suggest it's a fixed historical turning point. You know, we will be, there will be many more turning points to come. And of course, the party state described uh, Gulja 1997, the, the, the large scale incident that occurred then, as the party's turning point and its victory against separatism. So I'm sure there will be many more turning points to come. Sure. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And I think uh, it's it's obviously always going to be difficult in a in a in a case where there's been multiple sort of punctuated periods of um, of, of ratcheting up or of, of responses on the ground to these kinds of things over time to pinpoint you know one or a, a particular moment. And and I think uh, yeah, I mean for the practices the practical purposes of writing a book, obviously it's helpful to to have some kind of anchor. And I think. Uh, yeah, 2009 presents itself pretty clearly um, as, you know, uh, yeah, being a time when I guess there was um, violence on the streets of Urumqi on both sides, both uh, Han Chinese and, and uh, the Uyghur population, um, Uyghur population first, right, following this uh, uh, events in Dongguan down in South China where some Uyghur workers in a factory were, were killed. And so um, that is, yeah, I guess the uh, yeah, the context which underlies a lot of what you sort of subsequently described. So probably we should get into that a bit more. So also, I mean, uh, something you've already alluded to about the sort of securitization of ethnic identity. And, and so one, I guess, pervasive theme of the book as a whole is how uh, minority identity itself, and in this case, largely Uyghur identity, becomes a security problem in itself. It becomes something that the state comes to see, of, uh, see as a security issue. Could you explain a bit more kind of what this idea entails and, and yeah, what the dynamics of it are that you explore throughout the book? It can really be captured, I suppose, in the phrase from the ethnic unity, te ethnic unity um, education textbooks that I use throughout the book. Um, they use the phrase, only the three evils of extremism, terrorism and separatism would say that Uyghurs are a Turkic group. Only the three evils would say that Uyghurs are an Islamic group. So that sort of captures the way that I... Specific, the way Uyghurs specifically identify themselves, Turkic and Islamic, are framed as a security threat that, that's automatically associated with violence. Another example there being the very notion of East Turkestan in, in Chinese narratives called Dongtu, that the word Dongtu means both East Turkestan, the, the concept of the place, and the East Turkestan Islamic movement, the terrorist organisations, so there's no way to even discuss the notion of Turkestan without implying terrorism. So it's the very act of thinking through the concept of being a Turk uh, is framed as a, as a terrorist act. You, I mean, the way you could see that security was practised showed, even indicated this, obviously the, the types of slogans that I analysed throughout the book that, that I've mentioned, but the, the crowd control methods you could just observe this was not this was not 
troops set up to avoid, you know, bombs going off or car bombs or, you know, this was troops huddled together en masse that would be in danger if there was if there was bombs going off. So it was really crowd control. Um, and you're seeing this now in the statements from state council saying, you know, 30% of the population are extremists, 70% are vulnerable to extremism. So it was quite clear that it was the entire population um, that were, were seen as suspicious. And then in the narrative of identity that really explains violence itself through identity and the sort of contrast between the way the Shalguan incident prior to the July 2009 violence was framed as, quote, an ordinary public order incident. Um, and that was when a hand co-workers stormed the dormitory of Uyghurs in Shalguan and, and essentially battered them to death. And it, the videos went online and this sparked Uyghur anger and demands for justice. Uh, and the protest in Urumqi, of course, at the time that was primarily organised by students and university staff waving Chinese flags, demanding justice and equality. Even the, the ethnic unity textbook said that that was an act of terrorism, that just claiming, demanding justice and equality was really was something that only the three evils would do. Um, so it was actually, and then of course you have the, the violence of July 2009, when um, nearly 200 people are killed. Um, First of all, the violence on July 5th by Uyghur rioters that's, that are simply described as scum of the nation in, in these textbooks. Um, and it, it's really related to their, their identity as, as being Turkic-speaking Muslims. Um, so that contrast between, that sort of highlighted in very explicit way the contrast between Han killing Uyghurs as an ordinary public order incident, but Uyghurs killing Han is described as, quote, a life-or-death struggle for, for the survival of China. And also, is that that essentially that Han bodies are essential to the survival of the nation, where Uyghur bodies are not? So it was quite clear in that context that, obviously, like the book covers how Han and Uyghurs are conceptualised, and you, know, you have the central plains that's historically seen as a you know, representing advanced agriculture and the Tunkin Wenhua, the settler culture, or um, open up the frontier culture of the Han, arrive in Xinjiang to develop the region. Um, and whereas Uyghurs are primarily passive in this story. So that binary between Han and majority is is there. And you see that in, I mean, certainly the work of Drew Gladney and Louisa Shine focusing on Hui and, and, and southwest China, where security issues don't come up as much. But those narratives are obviously there. But what's, in, what's different about the Xinjiang case is how much emphasis is on this as a security problem, um, that notion of a life or death struggle for the survival of China and for China's rise. Um, it really makes the region stand out and be seen as a, a state of exception, except the exception goes on and on and on. Um, but also essentially primarily makes people view the region in terms of, a, of its its role in China's rise and in security without thinking about the people who actually live there. Sure, yeah. Well, that, that kind of, I guess, addresses quite a lot of contemporary stuff and, and the way that, yeah, narratives of uh, insiderness or outsiderness play out in relation to the contemporary projects. But, um, I mean... In the first chapters of the book, uh, which draw on kind of discourse analysis of government documents and also some sort of historical uh, materials, um, you kind of set this in a in a deeper context and uh, I guess describe Xinjiang uh, in its sort of like, yeah, Chinese imperial past and, uh, and and over a longer time frame as a security issue or as an issue uh, which yeah simultaneously was both um, constitutive or integral to the idea of building an empire or ultimately you know, building the PRC, but also something that has, you know, very manifestly been this sort of outside realm and therefore inhabited, I guess, by outside people. So could you say something about uh, Xinjiang's kind of long-term status as a frontier and how you understand this term frontier in relation to, uh, to the region at large? 
Yeah, the, and the, the concept of Frontier was always uncomfortable for me. I didn't initially want to use it because it's so disparaging to see someone's homeland as a frontier of somewhere else. So I, at first I tried to avoid the term, but really I'm using the term because that's the way it's framed. Obviously, the very name Xinjiang being New Frontier is only given to the region at the end of the 19th century. Um Framing it in terms of its otherness from the start. So that's, I, I mean, I certainly don't argue that history, you know, things haven't changed or the, it's, I mean, I'm trying to argue it's very, seen in very contingently included, if you like. It's included in different ways at different times. But really, the integration of the region begins, obviously, primarily in the 18th century with the arrival of the Manchu, um, who see the region primarily as uh, in geopolitical terms. Um, as a, a buffer, um, and of course you have this debate in the 19th century um, in the in the court over whether the region is, you know, a, a, a wasteland, um, a drain on the empire's resources, or whether it's a useful frontier dividend, um, a forward defence dividend, is the phrase. Um, so there was no sense that the, the region had its own identity. Um, obviously, before Xinjiang, it was simply called the Western Regions, populated by barbarians. So there was little sense that it was known this was a vassal of empire. But of course, gradually, over the centuries, the world changed and it began to be seen as part of the nation and now is seen as a indisputable sovereign territory. Um, so, of course, but even Mao Zedong, who's, who does say that, you know, and chauvinism could bring down China, essentially. He says, you know, minority nationalism and Han chauvinism could ruin the CCP's foothold in, in the region. And he, Anjo and Lai, refer to the region as a, you know, a piece in a geopolitical chess game. So still seeing it as purely in terms of, sort of political, geopolitical strategy, but Mao obviously starts to see, I mean, he refers to see that there's, there's real people there. It's, they're not just barbarians. He refers to Uyghurs as the majority. He refers to, he says to Zhou Lai, they're just like the Han in other parts of China. They're the core Minzo, the core ethnic group that form the region. So we can't go about telling them to give up religion and give up language yet. We have to get them into the party first. Um, and then by the 21st century, you see this notion of a timeless China, of, of Zhonghua Minzo that's no longer sort of historical materialist conception of 56 ethnic groups unified in a civic state, but is really saying that Xinjiang has always been part of China. It's timelessly Chinese. Um, it's thousands of years. Um, the stories always begin with the arrival of, of Han dynasty armies. Um, now that's that's not a new concept or a new idea, but when it, that idea was around in the 1950s, um, anthropologists, some anthropologists were very weary about it. Jen Bozan, for example, saying that this would concept would conceal China's history of class oppression, its history of ethnic oppression, and said would become like the West. And that really emerges in the arguments of historical materialists now, people like Bao Shanli, Hao Shi Yuan, that say that Fusion policies, and this is obviously before the fusion policies were fully rolled out and debates prior to that, they were saying this is westernization, this is Han chauvinism. So that's, I use the term, um, an ambivalent China, which can be interpreted in different ways. Obviously, the securitization aspect seems very black and white, but securitizing Zhonghua Minzo, making the context, concept of Zhonghua Minzo incontestable, that you must be and must have always been Chinese, is, an, is, is ambivalent because the region has never seen it as unambiguously Chinese. It's, they're highlighting, this parties they're highlighting that it's not Chinese enough. We have to, you know, pursue new, you know, monolingual education policies and uh, watch out for extremism and so forth. So it's constantly reminding people they're not Chinese, calling it a frontier, referring to the region as backward and in need of development, referring to the Han as an unbroken lineage and um, will guide the region to development. Um, it's constantly highlighting its difference and often its danger, and also saying that is always part of China. So that is very difficult to feel included 
um, when you're being told you're you're, you're different. Uh, and that, that that plays out obviously on the ground and how, how Uyghurs feel about China, but it's those tensions between inclusion and exclusion are there in the official narrative, um, or, or debate, certainly official or debates about the official narrative amongst Chinese scholars that are, you know, that, that debate about whether to you know, focus on development to solve the ethnic problem or to focus on social engineering. That's really the same tensions as you saw during the Republican era when people are debating, you know, what to do about the five so-called five races, whether they can be assimilated or they should be let go. Sort of similar debate in a very new context that isn't, thankfully, isn't resolving the problem. Um, but obviously now the idea is that fusion will resolve this problem forever. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, you do draw attention there to a kind of uh, multi layered and uh, con- somewhat, you know, internally contested set of narratives and conversations around what what the project ought to be and, and you know how to make the nation both territorially and uh, I guess demographically um, which isn't always widely understood you know I think it's easy to see the PRC state as a as a monolith and you you kind of dismantle that a little bit uh, or well considerably in these first three chapters which yeah as you've already alluded to kind of trace um, the historical construction of Xinjiang as a, as a security issue as a frontier through Things like uh, contemporary education and, and, and school textbooks and, and uh, education policies that emphasize uh, ethnic unity and, and the like, as well as uh, concentrating on what that means for the idea of East Turkestan, of, of Dongtu, as a, as, a, as, a, as a kind of ult- ultimately very dangerous concept because of the hardening of these ideas around the uh, body of the nation and the, and the human bodies that fill it up, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I think that first part of the book is, is a kind of uh, really um, excellent sort of account of that somewhat that hardening process, if you like, or the um, sort of yeah diff- more, more intractable um, ideas of, of territory and people that now are many people in Xinjiang are dealing with. So it's in chapters four to five, and then ultimately six to seven too, where you um, take it, uh, as you put it, uh, from um, the classroom to the street, and basically chart, I think, a bit more uh, everyday people's negotiations of this hardened narrative, if, if you like. Um, so could you say something about sort of the uh, questions of identity and, and security and, and how they actually play out, yeah, as you've put it, on the street, um, as you document in, in yeah, particularly chapters four and five around things like festivals and um, performances of, of yeah, ethnic unity discourse? Yeah, the first thing I'll say, like the, the, in terms of the diversity in the within the official narrative, if you like, um, I mean, I I came across that by living in Urumqi and talking to people first. I didn't necessarily expect to find those different narratives. Um, certainly, before doing research, I was told if you speak to Han, they'll just say what the party says. Um, and people thought, well, the party's just from you know focusing on security, so there's there's no diversity in there. Um, so it it came through encountering that was by going into the field and watching how festivals were celebrated, how surveillance worked, and interviewing people and really thinking about the different ideas I was hearing, um, and the sort of. In terms of the way securities practiced as an or sort of identities practiced as a security matter on the ground, I mean, the, obviously the I mean I try not to separate sort of you know thinking and acting if you like because of course the mass education itself is a huge practice. Um, it's not simply thinking; it's doing, and it's it shapes the ideas you see in terms of the official narrative being playing out on being, you know, advertised across the city at the time, um, but also in terms of people's ideas. I mean, there's a number of ways that, I mean, obviously discussed the, the, the way violence was conceived was, of course, the, the number one issue that, of course, that violence by Han, you know, essentially rioters were met on the 7th of July by party state representatives, including the city party secretary, saying thank you, comrades. Um, whereas Uyghurs are obviously being described as scum of the nation. So, so that meant that 
really, you know, it was very clear that Han were being told, um, Han rioters are being told that your violence is rational. We understand it. Um, please stop. We they say we are, we're in control now, but it wasn't deemed a security matter. It was seen as on site as supporting the state, supporting China, whereas Uyghur violence was not. In terms of, I mean, obviously the way security was practiced was highly ethnicized in terms of who was targeted. Obviously living there, you you, you come across examples every day, like trying to get a taxi if you look, if you don't look Han was difficult. Um, frequently I, I couldn't get taxis to stop. One day I just stood in front of the taxi um, and then he said, oh, I thought you were a Uyghur, but it's okay. You're a Laowai, a foreigner. Um, like, thanks, mate. Um, but really, you could see that. And you could see that whenever you're with minority friends, you couldn't get a taxi. Or like where I lived, the security guard would let Chinese friends in to visit, but any minorities had to sign their name and leave their ID number at the door. So you, you were small-scale things like that were just visible all the time. Um, a friend who I was with at the time who's from Scotland, but she wore a flowery dress. People were pulling their children away from her um, because they thought she looked Uyghur. Um, but the, when so this, the intensification of surveillance happened uh, around that time, of course, and you could also visibly observe that there was the CCTV recording cameras were flashing constantly in the Uyghur district in Ardalchal. Um, but where I lived in Han districts, there there weren't any. So you, you could just visibly see that. You could see the the troop large scale troop patrols. I mean, there was major major concentrations of troops on thoroughfares between the north and the south of the city to make sure there wasn't too much mixing. But any sort of street level patrols of neighbourhoods, you know, in the Han areas that I visited and lived in, there was almost none. Whereas in the Uyghur district, it was everywhere. Um, was also, that was a time, or shortly after that time, is of course when, well, at that time, you saw the cages that became ubiquitous emerged in 2009, the cages on street corners, essentially, with um, sort of four or five soldiers with automatic weapons and bayonets inside them. And these appeared all over the Uyghur district um, and remained for years. Um, I didn't have them in my neighbourhood, thankfully. Uh, what I did have was we would have you'd have um, citizen patrols as they were uh, to patrol the area. I, I could see them being trained from a window. One guy would go to get trained, and he would get an armband saying "patrol" on it, um, and he'd be basically just showing how to march up and down, and they'd give him a, a large club and show him how to stand. But then he would take a box of large clubs to a street corner and give them to all his friends, and they would be patrolling. Um, you know, he obviously didn't see groups of Uyghurs being given you know, boxes of clubs to distribute to their friends. Um, but you would see that in my area, and it didn't obviously didn't make people feel secure. I'm sure it made those men feel secure, as it were. Uh, but no, I, and I, I don't necessarily think. Many Han were made secure by this. Um, I don't think that's, you know, I, I think if you if you want to see uh, Han, Han men, untrained Han men with large clubs, I, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that's really down to ethnicity, that's down to your politics. Mm. So, and of course, bag checks and, you know, searches on buses and public spaces were rolled out where all the volunteers doing the checking were Han and this was causing you know, a lot of stress from my Uyghur friends or saying I'm being treated like a terrorist, why am I being treated like a terrorist, and so forth. That really rolled out. And, and those are the things that obviously people can understand quite easily, that, you know, just simple ethnic targeting. The notion of Tuanje and unity um, and ethnic festival celebrations is, is harder because unity obviously sounds very benevolent and inclusive and kind. Um but many of the notions of, obviously the notions of unity in the textbooks include many of the narratives I mentioned about framing, you know, the, the region as Xinjiang is backward and the central plains as advanced. Um, and they're always beside the slogans like the, 
understand the Libu Kai, the Han can't leave minorities and minorities can't leave the Han. Um, and then, of course, secu- you know, blatant security narratives, ethnic unity is essential for national security, um, the life or death struggle and so forth. Um, but the way festivals themselves were practiced seemed, I mean, it seemed fairly obvious to me that I was being told, you know, the spring festival is, and mid-autumn festival are national traditions that all Chinese people celebrate in a, in a Chinese classroom um, on the day of Uyghur festivals like Rosa, um, that was not mentioned. Um, and of course, it was Kunjie and were, of course, on television all the time in the newspapers, um, both national celebrations. Whereas on Rosa, we received a, an SMS message saying, reminding Muslim minorities to harmoniously celebrate. Um, there were no public celebrations. Um, when I went, I went early to the Uyghur district that day just to walk through. Um, it was very quiet, very, you know, very, very quiet. Han Chinese taxi drivers had actually gathered at some of the junctions. Um, the SWAT police were, that was when the SWAT police interviewed me to ask me what I was doing. I was just buying a bottle of water and going to the class. Um, and really, you know, and then obviously going to class and on, you know, being taught that this was a, you know, national level traditions or, or spring festival, but not Rosa. That was, it was obvious that this is, it's hierarchical that, you know, there's nothing wrong with having national festivals. But when you describe the festival of the majority ethnic group as trans ethnic and for all, but the festivals of minorities as, as ethnic, that's when the theme of objectivizing Hanness as Chineseness comes up and it makes people feel threatened and excluded when you're trying to include them because really the, the ethnocentric basis of that inclusion isn't being questioned and trying to challenge that is very difficult. Trying to say, I don't want unity. You know, you, you can't say that. That just <laughs> people will assume you're you're promoting separatism when usually it's the opposite. <laughs> You know, most of the Uyghur intellectuals that I would discuss this with, you know, it's the exact opposite. They're complaining about race, the, the racism that they face, not wanting to not integrate. Sure, yeah. I mean, that, that actually kind of brings us on quite well to the last couple of chapters of the book and some of um, your observations of, of narratives of ethnic and national identity and also, I guess, questions around security and, you know, whose who's security we're talking about here. Um, in particular, I think what you've just said uh, highlights these asymmetries that I guess you bring out throughout uh, in terms of what the stakes are for people discussing some of these questions. You know, it's it's it means something different, I think, as you argue it, for someone, uh, a hand person, to be discussing uh, their ethnic identity and indeed the notion of China, uh, where as opposed to a Uyghur person discussing those things, those are those sound like kind of you know common terms of a debate, but actually, as you as you know, part, partly because of yeah, well, largely because of power relationships and and all of the dynamics that you've discussed so far, they don't actually um, carry equivalent weight within the conversations and their narratives of, of, of different groups. So, could you say more about uh, how Uyghur and Han respectively sort of narrativize their ethnic identity and their attachment or lack of to something called China, you know, how they how they kind of frame that and, and respond to, uh, I guess, what is being promoted on an official level? Yeah, the, I mean, obviously, that's a massive area we could talk about forever. So I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> the, the first thing that jumps out, I guess, when talking about Han in China was after a year or so of being in Arunchi, you got very used to people asking, what is your ethnicity? Um, are you a minority? Um, Han, you ask, I mean, I would interview, I wouldn't even interview Han, I would just meet Han and say, where are you from? And they would say, I am a Han of China. Um, when I went, after a year of doing that work and visiting Beijing, um, <laughs> it was so different visiting there. Life just seems so different, but also... I, I met, I was thinking of hostel and I was speaking to the owner and he was saying, oh, great, you're living in Xinjiang and my friend's from Xinjiang. And I was, oh, great, yeah, is he? And I asked if he was a Han. And 
I was really embarrassed. He was he just thought this was a really rude question and why are you asking his ethnicity, what's that got to do with anything almost? Um, it really struck me that um you know, there's I think he thought I was reading into ethnicity and looking for problems, but what he was missing is really is that Han do talk about ethnicity in Xinjiang very much. So um uh, it's not like Beijing um, that, you know, were very, would be ambivalent about national identity, perhaps, in Beijing, in a way they're not in Xinjiang. But, you know, it was Han and Uyghurs would talk about ethnic identity all the time. Um, I remember visiting Turpan and a beer stall owner um who was telling, oh, you know, there's no there's no problems in China and we're we're all friends and we have ethnic unity and, and so forth. But then a group of Uyghurs next to us were drinking and he then, he then took us aside to explain to us how Chinese people were totally different from Uyghurs and they were very barbaric and drinking too much and so forth. And that, that's, that stuff would just happen all the time. And it's not, you know, you're not looking for ethnicity as such, but people bring it up similarly to the, the security dynamics. People would ask, why are you talking about security when you're working in ethnic relations? Well, the official narrative does this and people on, on the ground do this. I mean, I'd say the difference in terms of sort of talking to Uyghurs and Han up as an outsider about these issues, Han were very open at the time. Two thousand and well, two thousand seven to two thousand and ten, Han were, were very open um, about talking about these issues. Like I say, they would ask me what I thought about them, and that would kickstart the conversation um, to do with the dynamics that you've mentioned. That they felt safe, they, they felt they could they could articulate their identities. Now, that, they, their identities weren't equated, simply equatable to official narrative. Um, they would also say the party state isn't looking after us. Um, many would say they don't develop the region like they say they do. They don't protect us enough from the violent Uyghurs and so forth. Uh, but they're very open. To, they didn't feel unsafe talking about those issues. Whereas for Uyghurs, you know, you need to get to know someone quite well before, usually, before they would open up. You meet characters, of course, along the way um, all the time, but generally speaking, people were, were quite scared to talk. So you would usually have to have a, you know, a recommendation from a friend or, or just simply spend a long, long time with people. You know, it would take, you know, two years of knowing some people before I would even consider asking, can I record a conversation or an interview? Um, but primarily, I mean, I would say that the Han were wanting to talk to me about geopolitics and the terrorist issue um, and you know, East Turkestan and the West and, and humanitarian intervention and all these issues. Um, Uyghurs were, most, most of my Uyghur interviews were not strongly political in the sense that they didn't really want to talk about politics. Um, when they did want to talk about identity, they would rather talk about some traditional Uyghur culture, but they turned to talk about politics essentially because it affected their life. And that's when most of the conversations really happened. That it wasn't because people wanted to talk about the relationship between identity and security. Um, it really was just that people's lives started to be really affected by these issues. And you know, one of the characters in the book really starts when I first meet her she's very you know very, oh, she wasn't proud of China's achievements but she thought that China could resolve ethnic problems and violence and when we were watching national day celebrations she was just thought that the military displays were were a symbol of China's economic development um, and her attitude gradually changed as she you know, basically as her, her child stop being able to remember certain Uyghur words because he was going through bilingual education, which in practice meant monolingual education. Um, and then she lost her job because the, the employer didn't believe she wasn't a troublemaker during July 2009. Um, and the landlords wouldn't rent a house to her because she was a Uyghur. Um, and those types of incidents, that it would that's how 
the real conversations would come up. I mean, you you can, of course, you can talk to your intellectuals about history and the you know, relationship between ethnic and religious identity and all these issues. Um, but generally, the best, most interesting stuff was people just simply talking about their lives. Similarly with Han, in some senses that one of the interviews in the book, you know, tried to show, you know, a guy that really saw, the guy that saw his, his daughter being stabbed and the way that affected him, traumatised him, and um, he then became, you know, he admitted that he went out and tried to murder Uyghurs on July 7th, and it was had to be done in his language. I tried to humanise that. Um, he wasn't, you know, he that was just part of a natural conversation that then developed into something more. And he wasn't trying to talk about politics as such, but, it, you know, these issues that affected them. But, of course, but most, even people who weren't directly affected did want to talk about it um, at the time. Um, so that, yeah, the dynamic of feeling insecure, the, you know, Hannah insecure, made to feel insecure by the state because it, the official narrative makes them think Uyghurs are threatening. Um, but that means they're quite open, or they were quite open, whereas Uyghurs were generally scared that they're, because they were being told that their identities were part of the problem, that meant they were quite scared to open up. No, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's really helpful and, and very interesting, I think, uh, as a way of sort of discussing, um, I guess, a broader point that you're making here, which is that, um, you know, in many senses, this... Uh, Chinese nation-building project, as you as you term it, is not uh, not really working in, in in many respects because for both sides in different ways. If you know, if we reduce it to two sides, of course, there's an awful lot more going on in Xinjiang besides this. But um, in the case of Han and Uyghur residents of of Urumqi, as you're discussing, I mean, it doesn't really make sense to anyone's um, in individual experiences and, and and lives as as what as far as what they can see around them is concerned. Um, and I think that's a really kind of nuanced picture of this that you provide. Uh, by by delving into some of these um, these questions, um, so I guess uh, as we kind of draw towards a close, I'll I'll just ask more of a general question about uh, where you see sort of Chinese uh, or, 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 what you see the Chinese state as <laughs> at, at present. I mean, it's a very very wide ranging question, but I mean, you came as as you said into this field through an interest in in politics specifically, and I guess. Uh, you know, not to make China a particularly special or, or exceptional place um, uh, kind of in relation to other broader uh, political or state-based themes. So, I mean, has your research on, on Xinjiang kind of uh, convinced you that that was indeed, you know, the case that there isn't anything kind of new under the sun as far as what's happening uh, currently in the PRC is concerned? And um, it, in relation to that, like what what uh, does this kind of overall picture of what's happening in Xinjiang currently do to help us understand sort of China and the state uh, or the Chinese state at large now? Yeah, I, I do think that the shifts, the, the shifts I'm discussing are really significant to how we broadly define China. The, I mean, I, the Confucian historians are very open that China's history has been about you know, civilization and barbarians. I mean, Hu Weiming is really about how we conceive the peripheries. It's crucial to how we identify the core. Um, so I don't, you know, I take that cue in a sense from from Chinese thinkers. Um, and I think it is time, certainly for the Chinese nationalism literature, has to really look at the way frontiers are conceived. Um, in identity terms and in security terms, um, in order to understand mainstream modern China. This is an issue that the party state says could affect the survival of China as they define it. That seems a very important issue to look at. I don't, I mean, I don't, some people think we need more sort of just concrete sort of comparative political science working on China. I mean, I'm not going down that road. I think there's room for that. But I do, I do, I do stress the need for ethnographic work. And I would say that in any state, country or region, it, we need to balance macro theory with micro analysis and that. So I think there's absolutely room for both grand theorization of where China fits into world order and these grand issues, but also of how this plays out 
on the ground. And I, I do think these two, those two streams should speak to each other more. Um, I think that's part of the problem because it's easy to centralise China from afar. But if you'd start doing the work on the ground, um, you see how how diverse it is and diff how different regions are governed. Also, different ideas about about Chineseness. That I mean, one of the reasons that the Chinese nation building, in a sense, does work is there are multiple ways of being Han and Chinese. The you know, you can be a Confucian, you can be a historical materialist, you can be an ethno-nationalist. It's just struggling to include Uyghurs and ethnic minorities generally. Um, but I think this is a time where, I mean, more people are looking at Xinjiang and I hope it's, I hope we'll have an influx of genuine interest in the region that can bring fresh perspectives. I hope they'll read the literature on Xinjiang and not just on mainstream China. Um, it, it needs, you know, the historical background and the nuance, um, but it will be great if there's people with different perspectives wanting to look at it. But I do think if you're wanting to understand modern China, you need to understand these frontiers. Um, and, you know, I mean, James Leibold is arguing that, you know, his argument that the policy shift in it, you know, that's a shift from, you know, from nominal cultural diversity towards cultural nationalism. Um, that shift requires ideas from outside China studies because, I, I mean, you don't have, you know, you don't gain an expertise on on issues of, of racial politics or fascism with studying China studies. You know, you, you just don't learn what those things mean. Um, Whereas if you read about those issues and then look to what's happening in Xinjiang, it's it's re remarkably familiar, um, and that is, that's going to require us suddenly to be. If we don't want to be Eurocentric, we will have to stop being Sinocentric, and mm -hmm. we read. We're going to need to read about different periods of history, parts of the world, um, because simply falling back on what we think we know about China's past isn't, you know, some of it helps and some of it doesn't. Right. Well, I think that's tremendously helpful and, uh, yeah, kind of apposite place to, to bring this to a close. As a conclusion, I think that, uh, yeah, serves very well to illustrate the value of, uh, of your book and, and the perspectives it brings to, yeah, a region which, as you said, is often seen um, primarily through the lens of uh, kind of a, a part of China that is different from other parts of China, but nevertheless, you know, is seen in relation to China. So, um, David, I think you've done a great job today of, uh, yeah, of giving us a picture of, of, of what your book does. And thanks very much for that. Um, before we let you go, though, uh, I'll ask you one final question, which is what it is that you're working on at the moment and, and kind of what's followed on from uh, this book. Lots, really. Obviously, all of us are having to adapt to new methods and new ideas. It's also, we can't, I just want to go back to the region um, and talk to people, but that isn't possible now. So, yeah, I admit, the sort of what I'm working on just now, two mainstreams. One, one is the sort of narrative analysis of official policy. Um, so I've got a paper under review at a, an IR journal more about the way this fits into, the way Xinjiang policy fits into China's or the CCP's view of world order and international relations, viewing Uyghurs and Xinjiang as a problem for China's state power globally. That's one theme. And then the second one is more focusing on Uyghur identities, specifically the impact of, of the camps, trying to speak to basically diaspora families that are affected by these issues. Um, I've got a paper under review about, you know, essentially more about whether this is genocide or not, looking at theories of genocide by attrition, um, weeping genocide, those notions that sort of make us think about genocide rather than think of it as a sudden irrational outburst, that something that develops over the long term. Mm. So, yeah, trying to, trying to do a bit of the top down and a bit of the bottom up work not give up on either <laughs> well that's great i mean i think that does set a lot of this into deeper context too and and again furthers this project which uh, this book exemplifies of uh, making sense of this stuff in relation to yeah wider i guess con conceptual tools that uh, we are, we do well to use to apply to uh, 
human societies wherever we find them. Um, so brilliant. Thank you so much, David, again, for appearing today. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Uh, listeners, thank you too for listening. Uh, this has been New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>